Hi, everyone. I just wanted to take a moment at the top of the episode to let you know that we have a guest co-host today. Kumi Nadu is an old friend of ours who has led just the most extraordinary life of activism and leadership, from being an anti-apartheid activist at the age of 15, working with Mandela and Tutu on the first free elections in South Africa, storming an oil rig in the North Sea and leading both Greenpeace and Amnesty International. We're thrilled to have him with us this week. And while, of course, no one can replace Christiana, this is going to be a fun episode. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom rivet And I'm Paul Dickinson. And I'm Kumi Naidu. This week, we discuss the substance and method of leadership to enable us to grasp the opportunity of change in this moment of transformation. Plus, we speak to CEO of Leaders Quest, Lindsay Levitt. Thanks for being here. So, Kumi, what a pleasure to have you with us. We're going to get into so many exciting issues that we want to learn from you and talk about today. But first up, we want to know, how are you? This has been a lockdown. It's been a strange time. You doing all right? Well, you know, I have a funny story. Actually, not funny, <laughs> somewhat tragic. Oh, no. Uh, so I was in Costa Rica before the lockdown. Can I just stop you right of... there? Costa Rica plays an extremely important and prominent role on this podcast. A growing part of this podcast. It's almost <laughs> entirely about Costa Rica. So fantastic start. Thank you. You couldn't have had a better start. I checked this out with Clay before. So <laughs> and he encouraged me. It's, it's a good one. Yeah, so, uh, so I was in Costa Rica. Part of my plan was to... Um, spend time with uh, Christiana uh, after she got back from Australia. Oh, yeah. And and I was there also uh, to work with one of the most inspirational uh, organizations that I've known, uh, known as The Rules, uh, which oh, is yeah, looking yeah, with at structural. Al Nur Lada. Uh, yeah. Lada yeah. And, Great. And, and also for some uh, retreat and meditation to recover from my burnout and uh, illness and so on. Unfortunately, lockdown hit us. I spoke to Christiana when she got back, right, literally, and was trying to figure out whether to stay, whether to go. In any case, I, I left. I got to London on the hope of getting to South Africa. I got stuck in London and I'm stuck in London. However, uh -huh. it gets dramatic. The last 10 weeks has been an agony. I discover that I brought something back with me from Costa Rica. So I brought back three bot fly lava, oh. one in my head, one in my stomach, and one in my chest. And oh. I was in absolute agony trying oh. to figure out what it was. Oh, oh my God. And uh, I've just had surgery last week, Friday, to remove the stuff, and I'm in recovery at the moment. So it's a kind of dramatic story of how wow. I have been. So my lockdown has been with me alone with three bot fly lava in my system, <laughs> which I brought from Costa Rica. In London, where you don't live anyway. So sort of like in a third yeah. country. I mean, yeah. Paul lives in absolute fear of Costa Rica, mainly because of the spiders and the scorpions and the crabs. But now, Paul, you have and another... And frankly, reason. there is like a little bit of evidence here, you know, and, 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 and Costa Rican people I know are going to probably take offence to this. But, you know, with all of that beauty and, and, and lovely nature can come, uh, yeah, the... the the tougher side of, of nature. Either either you, we've got this crazy virus or you've actually got this thing. And, and my sympathy to you, what a terrible, unpleasant time. Without making you relive the entire experience, is a bot fly one of those things that like lives under your skin and then it has to be like pulled out? 
Yeah. That so so wow. basically, okay. it, it's a fascinating story of nature, actually. Yeah. Because a botfly mum, when she's ready to drop her eggs, jumps on a mosquito, holds it down with pincers, lays its eggs on the mosquito, and then when the mosquito bites you, the egg drops into where the mosquito bites you. It's a fascinating. Unfortunately, wow. I was on the receiving end of this fascinating <laughs> manifestation <laughs> of, of this nature. Fascinating <laughs> evolutionary partnership. <laughs> kind of laced mosquito. Oh my God, what a thought. So, so Kumi, thank you so much. I'm so sorry that you, I mean, that is definitely the most dramatic lockdown story I've ever heard. Paul, I assume you're still sort of sheltering in place in Brighton slash London with, without bot yeah, flies or, or, or anything remotely Sometimes dramatic. I see a, a large dog and I have to go to therapy for a month. But, you know, this is like a whole other thing. The spiked, the spiked mosquito bite. Ah! So... So, but, but um, Kumi, having the opportunity to talk to you this week, we really wanted to focus on, um, you know, talking about how we take the responsibility and the opportunity for leadership, both the recovery from the pandemic and the moment of transformation on racial injustice that we're seeing are potential openings for real change at scale that is often impossible due to the inertia of the systems and of our lives. But we can only grasp this change if enough of us find a way to be really effective in insisting on this change and making it stick. So before we kind of go to our interview uh, with Lindsay later, we really want to dig into that with you. So where, where are you on that at the moment? What can you share with us to give us an insight into how you think about those issues? So for most of my time at Amnesty, I was saying something that I'd never said before, hmm. which is that I thought that Steve Bannon had something right uh, and that we should learn from him. And that is that okay. politics follows culture. Culture does not follow politics. Hmm. Right. And one of the mistakes we make sometimes is not understanding the cultural rhythms in society and so on. So how I'm feeling right now is that we need to be using new forms of resistance to injustice that we have to learn from what Albert Einstein once said when he said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expected to get different results. So in that context <laughs> of recognizing the importance of culture, I've written my first poem in my life on 25th of May, wow. 25th of May, which is African Liberation Day, which was also the day that George Floyd was murdered. Yeah. Ironica. Uh, but anyway, the poem is called, We Are All Desperate to Get Back to Normal, But Should We? Awesome. Normal. What an average word. So uninspired, it's actually absurd. In a time when we have been forced to change our ways, to pause and isolate, and dream of better days, that we'd yearn for the world of yesteryear, a world so divided, so fragmented by fear. It's mind-boggling at best that we might just blow Mother Nature's tests, longing for the same madness that put us in this global sadness, of me first and screw you and buy four for the price of two. Surely, getting back to normal can't be our aim, after all the sacrifices death and pain? Yes, this pandemic has brought us to our knees, cutting jobs and highlighting inequality. Our leaders are exposed and the broken systems they have imposed, and now obviously not making any sense. So why do we obsess and resist what needs to be? The end to these failed economic schemes and political machines that weaken and divide, leaving only the elite satisfied. No, we have to be better than this. And if not for ourselves, we must for our kin, our children and their children, 
and the ones after them. Thankfully, our youth has far more motivation to take action and end the years of frustration. By breaking down the walls we've created and the inequality that is so outdated. So now, what are you going to do? Let's hope it's something substantially new. To keep building post-corona a human existence that is far from over. Learning from lessons, respecting all persons, especially our healthcare and essential workers who were invisible to many of us before this pandemic. And never again lest we forget what and who really matters, even when all hope scatters. Because this tragedy surely must be our big opportunity to look beyond what has always been and build a world that we can all thrive in. Thank you. Hey. Thank you. So you get a sense of where my mind is. So that's how I'm (laughs) where I think we are. I mean, I think... That was quite an answer. I love that. I love that. And I love how, like, you really nail this, like, evocative sense of, of, like, the pregnant possibility of something else and this kind of hesitancy to step into that and the fact that there is a fear... It seems to be to like embrace something new, but that's what we have to do. This is the moment for it's about courage, I suppose, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's about having the courage to recognize, you know, what Martin Luther King said in 1965. You know, he, he said, uh, he's coming to the end of his speech. He said, My friends, as I come to the end of the speech, I want to note that in the field of modern psychology, there's a very dominant term called maladjusted. Now, he said, we all want to be well-adjusted. Of course, we all want to be well-adjusted and not suffer from schizophrenia or other mental illnesses. But then he says, but my friends, I say to you, there are certain things in our world that are so unjust and immoral that good, decent people should refuse to be well-adjusted to. And then he goes on to say, I never intend to adjust myself to religious bigotry, racial discrimination, and on the economy, very importantly, he said, I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that will take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few when millions of God's children are smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in an affluent society. Now, yeah. now the problem, and, and in fact, a longer version of the speech, he called for an organization to be formed that was never formed, and maybe now's the time to form the organization, where he said, I now call upon decent men and women around the world to come together to form a new international movement to be known as the International Association for the Advancement of Creative Maladjustment. That is... <laughs> Right. So, so basically, the problem we got is far too many of us over the decades in leadership and out of leadership have accepted things that we should never have accepted. Right. The levels of economic inequality, right. the levels of gender inequality, how we have treated nature and many, many more things. And part of leadership right now is about having the courage to accept that what's going to get out of this mess is not incremental changes, not baby step improvements here and there. We cannot make the same mistake we made after 2009 financial crisis when the, those with power's response was all about system recovery, system protection, system maintenance. Right. What we need moving forward is system innovation, system redesign, and system transformation. That's the leadership we need at the moment. Hmm. Mr. Paul? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm just very struck that my two co-hosts have both during lockdown, spontaneously written poems. Um, uh, t- Tom, Tom wrote one and it's got animated on Ted. That was very I'll give you the, my contact me. at Ted. Yours uh, would be good as an animated story. No, but, but, <laughs> you know, I think both of them in very different ways are about um, 
I mean, the phrase I, I picked up was, we have, to, we have to be better than this. Um, and yeah, that image of enormous wealth sitting alongside um, enormous avoidable suffering seems so like we're doing so badly. That's kind of what got me motivated in, in my life to, to see if we could do better. Now, now can I ask you a, a question, Kumi, a, a picking up on your very controversial comment about Steve Bannon, who is indeed, um, you know, uh, certainly animated with ideas and has shown uh, probably he was one of the pathfinders for this new kind of politics, which a lot of people on the the left, I hate that phrase, but you know what I mean, are not so good at um, the, the politics of 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 of, of um, uh, f- uh, politics following culture. And I noticed you said um, once a movement only becomes a movement of substance, size and power when the artists say we want to add our voice. Mm. So can you maybe paint a little bit of a picture about how things could go really well so maybe some of our listeners can go and make some of that happen? So during the struggle against apartheid, for example, where many of our people were deprived of education, so most of our people are not able to read and write. So if you were going to organize and mobilize, even doing a short leaflet to outline what the issue was, was not going to reach people. So you had to use music, arts, poetry, um, theater, street theater, and so on. And I think that some of those basic ways of communicating to people and reaching people, we are losing. Because I am not, I have no doubt in my mind that today we live in a world where the majority of people want gender equality, where the majority of people want action on climate change, where the majority of people want less money spent on military weapons and more money spent on education, health, and so on. No question, the majority of people. And we say that we're living in a world where we have majority democracies in the world. Why is it not happening? Why are we, uh, you know, completely, completely stuck? And unless we are willing to go to uh, the fact that those of us in leadership and the way we speak leaves many, many people behind. I'll give you an example. You know, my first COP negotiation was um, Copenhagen, right? And I had just started two weeks earlier at Greenpeace and I was with my wonderful new colleagues at uh, Greenpeace uh, prior to it started. And there was a half an hour briefing. And in that half an hour, about 10, well, in the first 10 minutes, about 10 times I had to turn to the colleague sitting next to me to say, excuse me, what does that say? What does that acronym mean? I remember like LULUCF. Right, everybody's yes. saying Lulu CF, Lulu CF. I'm sitting there thinking, is Lulu CF a country? I didn't small island state that I or didn't hear of. Is it an acronym? <laughs> what is it? Right, and then you know, yeah, land use, land use change in forestry. So I'm sure you figured out that yeah, our listeners yeah. probably yeah. haven't. <laughs> so, so, so I want to say, and this is, I don't think it's uh, that controversial, Paul, to say that uh, Steve Bannon is right about uh, culture leads politics. But I think what might be more controversial to say is that we, people that are advancing the different causes, are not very good at understanding where the majority of people's realities lie, being able to sensitively engage with that. People are getting better all the time. Certainly, NGOs are getting better and so on. All I'm saying is we've got a long way to go. And if we don't crack that, even though majority of people might support the things that we want in climate action will not be able to carry them because we are talking in a language that does not resonate with them, in the imageries that don't resonate with the cultural fabric and so on. We need to get to do that better. 
That's a, that's a great analysis of why, um, and I, I love the, the, you know, the sort of the clarity with which you lay that out, that the majority of people want action on these issues. And yet, even in a participatory democracy, we end up with this circular system where we keep not breaking through. How do you feel, therefore, I mean, right now we're going through what feels like a cultural moment in the recognition of historical racial injustice, and that has spread around the world at a remarkable pace. Um, and that feels like that has come from a cult. I mean, obviously, it was spurred by brutality and the reaction to that, but it feels like it has become a cultural moment. So how do you feel about that? Do you feel that that's hopeful? And do you think that that can actually then turn into something that is sustaining? It is always challenging to draw hope immediately when there's been so much of pain and tragedy. Yeah. So, but I think the response to this horrific murder you know, I, I, I've listened to, I never saw the full video, right? It's horrific to watch. For me, as somebody, you know, my, I lost my mom when I was 15 years old. And to hear him say, mama, mama, uh, which he says on the tape, it's horrific. So I, I want to just start by acknowledging, you know, before we look at the positive things that can come out of it, we must acknowledge that this is not an isolated incident. It's been going on for so uh, long, not only in the United States, yeah, in the UK, around the world, yeah. and so on. And let's hope and pray that this life will not have been lost in vain. The life of all those that should never have been brutalized by police um, must not be lost in vain. And for those reasons... Hmm. We've got to make sure that something positive comes out of this. Yeah. And I do, I, I've been fighting racial injustice ever since I was 15. I cannot remember a moment in global history where the issue of racial injustice has got the currency and the momentum like we have seen. Certainly, even the somewhat half-hearted move by the U.S. Congress, which, of course, Trump will block, on putting some mm. controls and regulations that monitors the behavior of um, police officers, that would just never have happened where this tragedy not have happened. And But I think that I want to believe that something really transformative and positive can come out of it. And this is not about simply building back better, as the phrase is used. Hmm. It's about building back in a transformatively better way, not just incremental improvements here and there. The system has to be completely reorganized, top to bottom. I don't know how to do it, and I should not be expected to know how to do it, by the way, as Greta yeah. and the, children, uh, the, the, the young uh, students say. Uh, those with power, money, resources, and so on, who claim to be so powerful, brilliant, and so on, um, have a collective responsibility with us to design that better future. Yeah, that's always been a way for sort of removing the authority of someone who claims. But that was beautiful. Thank you for that, Paul. Uh, just a just a tiny thing. I mean, I, I mentioned it last week, but um, you talked about this this kind of maverick uh, leadership. I can't remember what was the word. The 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 uh, the dis, the dysfunctional or creative the, the, maladjustment. Yeah. Creative maladjustment. So I think of those um, sports people who took the knee. Uh, you know, exactly. during the, the national anthem and it's creative maladjustment. And then you've got, 
you know, police in Los Angeles, taking Miami, Washington, D.C., the head of the, the head of the NYPD taking a knee. And it feels almost like a storming of the Bastille moment. You know, there's like this suddenly there's a whole change in the dynamics yeah, of power. A, take a bow, Colin Kaepernick and all the first yeah. football players that took a stance. You know what I say to people, Paul? The struggle for justice is not a popularity contest, yeah. right? <laughs> because if you, if you, no, no, if you think about it, Mandela was imprisoned for 27 years. We celebrate him as one of the greatest human beings that ever lived. Gandhi was yeah. in prison multiple times. Martin Luther King was in prison 41 times. You know, uh, you, at the moment when people st stand up for justice, they are going against the status quo. When people stood up against slavery or colonialism or women having the right to vote, they were in a minority. They were the Colin Kaepernick taking the knee on racial injustice yeah right but clearly momentum has been reached now and colin kaepernick and all the others who did those initial actions are vindicated by far and i think uh, i also saw members of congress taking the knee i i don't know whether i imagined mm -hmm. that but even members yeah. of yeah, congress yeah, yeah, yeah. no 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 for sure for <laughs> sure yeah. No, it's a powerful, powerful imagery and imagery that, that travels. And I even saw a demonstrator, she managed to persuade the National Guard to take a knee. And it's just like, what does, I mean, what does it mean? You know, you, you go down on one knee, but in a sense, you connect to that lineage to those uh, sports people, Colin Kaepernick, who starts this whole movement and gets us to reframe what national pride means. But Paul, you've just given the most brilliant example of what I was trying to say when I said politics follows culture, right? Colin yep. Kaepernick could have got up and given the most brilliant speech. By the way, he gave an amazing acceptance speech when he received the Amnesty International uh, Ambassador of Conscience Award, right? Hmm. Absolutely stunning, right? But would that have resonated with the ordinary people in the United States? That action of taking a knee was a cultural action, mm. right? It was an action that resonated, that ordinary people could understand it, even if you were literate or not literate and so on. Because we have too many divides, even on the educational front, right? Because there's different levels of conversation taking place. Some people have all the knowledge, some people have almost nothing. And partly, if we're going to move things forward, we have to work at a way with an knowledge of what's happening in the world have to be understood by many, many more people so that they can own the responsibility of finding the solutions moving forward. Mm. So um, so, so this has been a fantastic conversation and so good to have you here, Kumi. This has been a real treat for us to have, have someone else on the podcast co-host it. We're not suggesting, Christiana, that we don't miss you. Of course we do, but it's great to have you too, here too this week, Kumi. Um, so now we're going to play you uh, a tape that we recorded a couple of weeks ago before Christiana went off. Um, so she's part of this conversation too. This was just when the movement against racial injustice had begun to gather momentum and was still based in Minneapolis. Um, but Lindsay Levin herself is somebody that we have known for many years. She is the CEO of an organization called Leaders Quest. And Leaders Quest was founded to improve the quality of leadership in the world. And she's played a remarkable role over decades to take very senior leaders and give them an experience that takes them out of their normal comfort zone and helps them see the world differently. And we've experienced ourselves and we've seen how that can have an amazing impact on leaders. So Paul, you know her too. Anything you want to share? No, just everything you say is 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 true. But I mean, very specifically, you get groups of of people, and she takes people to um, different areas. Uh, for example, uh, in in conflict zones or or in in areas of extreme poverty. Um, and I think that 
I can testify for the hundreds of people probably I've spoken to about the profound impact this has on them. And, um, you know, she, she, she really is someone who um, expresses her art through other people. And that's a rare but most valuable skill. Great. Let's go to the interview. Lindsay, what a pleasure to have you uh, on Outrage and Optimism. Whenever we get together, this little foursome group that we're here, we're usually on task uh, trying to get 37.5 things done in about two seconds. Uh, And so it's such a pleasure to have a little more time to Mm. step away from our tasks and... um, and really take a peek into who is Lindsay Lemon. So mm. thank you very much for that privilege. Um, we wanted to start, Lindsay, by saying, uh, well, I, I think I can speak for Paul and for Tom, by saying you are perhaps the person, or to not you know, be so irresponsible, at least top of our list, of the people who are most thoughtful, about leadership, but who also have gone beyond the thinking and conceptualizing of leadership and are actually acting out there, showing up in the world with your own leadership qualities. And in addition to that, helping so many other heads of corporations or public sector um, Uh, leaders to really step up in their leadership. So we just want to know, who is Lindsay? How did you get to this? And why, of all of the different things that you could be doing, why this? Well, thank you, Christiana. It's really wonderful to be with you and Tom and Paul. So I really appreciate you inviting me to to join you. who am I? Well, I'm, a, I'm an adventurer and I'm super curious about the world. Um, I love people. I love connecting with people. I'm excited about life. I'm as excited about life, maybe more so today than I, you know, than, than I was when I was younger. And um, I guess the work that I do kind of came out of that on the one hand, curiosity, joy, um, a, a sense of appreciation for all kinds of people, you know, from different places and different perspectives, but also actually a big sense of sadness about things that are broken in the world. And, you know, the work I do today, which of course has its roots, I'd say back in childhood and and my early career, but, you know, I've been, I've been doing Leaders Quest for the last 19 years now. And in a way, it was my answer to how can I be useful? You know, I spent a lot of time traveling. I'd spent time in my own backyard understanding, you know, the communities I came from, but also spending time with people in different parts of the world. And I was really struck by what I would call the gaps, you know, the gaps between people, the, the things that polarize us. And at the same time, you know, I had lots of experience of people doing incredible things and I wanted to bridge those gaps. And so, you know, my work is really about that. Uh, you could say it's about healing. Um, and, and what I quickly understood is that you can't help make things better. You can't help transform anything into something else unless you're able to do that with yourself. So, you know, leadership, I think, is a, is a full immersion thing. You, you don't stand on the side of the pool and advise everybody else how to swim. You, you get in the pool and you learn to swim. And um, so 
maybe like many people's work, my work's been about exploring who I am and bringing that to life and in the process, you know, trying to bring some others along with me. Well, Lindsay, that sounds like a life journey um, that I think is a beautiful life journey. But if I can just push you one tad further, was there a particular aha moment for you? Was there a particular moment in which you decided, okay, what I have been doing or how I have been doing in the past is not the way I want to continue? Was there a particular inflection moment in your life? I mean, there were a few, but I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, before I started Leaders Quest, I spent about a year um, in in agony, actually, trying to figure out. Let me let me call it. What am I here for? The sort of you know those big existential questions. How am I going to do something useful? Um, I mean, now I sort of smile at it because it was it's kind of a grandiose question. You know, you look at the things that don't work, and you really want to make a contribution to those. Um, and there were particular moments, one with nature um, and one with 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 a person. Um, so let me start with a person. Um, I went in 2001, I went to Ethiopia with Oxfam to see their work, to experience what they were doing on the ground. And I'd, I'd traveled a lot, but I hadn't been with a, a development charity before. I had an incredible 10 days of meeting people in really extreme circumstances, you know, parts of the country that were in famine, uh, people struggling and people doing incredible things to overcome extraordinary difficulties, but just the struggle actually of existence. And I met uh, on the last day, I was in a a slum on the outskirts of Addis Ababa. And I saw a woman um, crouched down making a little fire outside of a very simple shack that she lived in. And she had a little bundled up child beside her. And I went over to her. She was right on the edge of the of the community. And I went over to her. I had somebody with me who, who could translate and I asked if I could join her and I sat down with her and I had a conversation and she told me about her situation. She had a, a boy of eight who was in school. She had this little daughter, very tiny actually, although she was three or four years old, who had been born with something like cerebral, cerebral palsy. And this woman, Hasia, her husband left when the child was born and she was just eking out a living, uh, selling bread that she cooked uh, in total poverty. And I had children of a a similar age at the time. Um, And it was just an it was just a huge connection. I I felt shame, uh, which I often feel actually in the work that I do. And and I think there's something about that in, in sort of connecting to this size of the gap, which which I knew was wrong. Um, and, and I guess I came back wanting to tell her story. So how could I tell her story? How could I make those kind of connections for other people in a way that is hugely motivational? Because you then get into, you know, how do you turn this feeling into action? And then my nature example was actually with Paul Dickinson, but I, I'm sure he doesn't remember it. <laughs> Um, so I think just I do. A, do you? Okay. I mean, I don't know if you had the same experience as me. I think you were already doing this stuff, but I went about the same time as I was thinking about Leaders Quest. I went to Schumacher College and spent a weekend with Stefan Harding, the uh, wonderful ecologist. And one of the things he did was he took us out for a walk in nature. It happened to be one of those perfect uh, English days. Uh, we were in the in the woods, a very ancient woodland. He got us to lie down in the moss. He got us to hug trees. I lay in this moss, just, you know, my face a few inches above above the moss. 
And I saw moss for the first time, actually, because I, I was just really looking and it was so beautiful mm. and so exquisite and so tiny, amazing detail. The same patterns that you see in everything in life, you know, in the universe. And I, I fell in love again with with the natural world. Um, and and I think that's also in all sorts of ways, those patterns, both those stories have shown up in, in the work we do, because I think what I'm about, re I mean, leadership requires that you look in the mirror and the things you see in other people, you also have in yourself, um, the things that you're most touched by, you know, dig deep there because that's where some of our most important work and opportunity comes from. Let's so, say the things that are most irritating to us are about other people are the things that we have right, ourselves. Right, <laughs> exactly. You can't be triggered by something if you don't have some of it in yourself. So, so, so it's hard work, right? You have to yeah. dig yes. and you have to laugh at yourself and, and you have to have these horrible moments of realization that you are part of the problem. I am part mm. of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, so I love those stories because they the common thread between them is that they're about giving attention to things that you hadn't noticed before, right? Both in terms of giving attention to, to humans that you maybe hadn't noticed or giving attention to the natural world. And then through that giving of attention, you then learn because you then have the opportunity to witness something new and you get to watch and that changes you and your perception of the world. And I mean, you know, I've known you for many years, Lindsay. We've been all over the world to different places and, and met these remarkable people. And I think part of the power of the work that you do is you kind of shine a light, help us to see these stories of like, we've been down coal mines in West Virginia and into prisons in Detroit and, you know, in Beijing and all sorts of other things. And I just wonder, you know, right now, so many people are sitting at home listening to this and they're kind of it's a tough time, right? We're, we're coming at the end of this period of isolation. It's now more confusing than it was when it was straight isolation. People are slightly being allowed out of their homes, but the boundaries of that are unsure. We're reawakening into this moment of real transition and concern in the United States with police brutality and then what, everything that's happened since then. As you look at all of that, what lessons can be drawn for people who are sitting in their homes and worried about the future, worried about what that might look like for them, that you've seen all these people facing these very uncertain futures mm. and seen them come through it with tremendous qualities and tremendous leadership? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I woke up this morning and looked at the latest news here in the, in the United States where I live and I felt real, you know, despair, to be honest. Um, yeah. So... You know, it is overwhelming. These things are overwhelming. Um, and I think the, the news feed is overwhelming. Um, what I've learned to do is to basically get out and meet people. Uh, mm. The truth is that every day, everywhere, millions of people are doing good things. Millions of people are doing good things. Millions of people are doing kind things. Millions of people are having impact. Um, those stories, for all sorts of reasons that we, we, I guess, well understand, don't typically get told. And so there's something about just kind of going out and putting your feet in the soil, you know, getting your hands dirty, getting in touch with people, connecting, um, seeking stories. I mean, we are, we are social beings. We, we like to connect with one another. And it's hard, right? We've been in isolation. I mean, maybe that's part of the problem, right? So, you know, how do we do that? We're having to do it over Zoom. We're having to learn new ways to, to connect. Uh, many people are incredibly lonely. I think that's that's a piece of what's going on. But, but my own experience is that uh, people all over the place 
every day do incredible things. I, I think the other thing that I've learned is, I mean, some of my mentors um, or people who just touched me or taught me something large or small have been people working in incredible adversity, the kind mm. of adversity that I've I've never lived through. And, you know, it's not the way that you would wish to learn. I mean, who wants to learn by, you know, spending 20 years in jail or something? Uh, one of, one of actually one of my special mentors just uh, passed away, the ripe old age in his late 80s, um, a couple of weeks back, Dennis Goldberg. He was um, arrested with um, Nelson Mandela. He was part of the group that were arrested together in Ravonia. He, he was the one white guy in that group. And so he went to, to a different jail. He was sent to a white prison mm. uh, because in South Africa in those days, the prisons were segregated. Kind of extraordinary given what he was fighting for. Spent 22 years in prison and like many people in in those kind of extreme circumstances, emerged as an amazing leader. Mm. Um, I took, many years back, I took a group of students to meet him and people were just riveted by the stories that he told and the compassion with which he did that. So, you know, I'm giving you in a way extreme examples. Unfortunately, I mean, in, in, here in the United States, uh, the country's full of people who've been through Diff real difficulties. I've I've spent a lot of time since I moved here um, in, in understanding the prison system and, and incarceration. I've learnt an enormous amount from some of those individuals I've met in that circumstance. You know, one of my current mentors. I'm going to speak to him actually later on today. A, a gentleman called Aurelio, um, who I met after he came out from 24 years in prison. He went in at 17. And he's taught me some things about this country. Um, and hopefully I've, I've also been able to share some things with him. So there's something about, I mean, the tough times in life are when we learn. And of course, you don't wish for more of those. And many people have way more than their fair share of difficulties. But out of that, we learn and grow. And I think... Um, you know, to the extent that we can support one another on that path, you know, using adversity to learn, mm -hmm. um, looking at ourselves, understanding what makes us tick, you know, where does my own anger come from or, or my, my fear? We all have fear. We all have, these are just such fundamental, basic human qualities. And there's something about making the connection between those things, really seeing one another, knowing that you're seen knowing that you're relevant, that you count. Everyone needs that. Mm. Um, and so perhaps, I mean, the optimist, I'm a stubborn optimist, um, <laughs> the optimist in me. And that gets very high marks yeah, on this it's, podcast, it's, that sort of comment. Yeah, no, I mean, right. So, exactly. Top draw. <laughs> Funny enough, in our, one of the Leaders Quest values is clear-eyed optimism. And I nice. wanted it to be stubborn optimism, but I was overruled. People, We already had relentless generosity and they uh. said, we can't have relentless and stubborn. You know, it's, it's <laughs> Of course you can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm relentlessly stubborn. Um, so, you know, there, there's something about taking these moments, digging deep, connecting with one another, uh, looking for the best in one another, being generous to ourselves, actually. So, so Lindsay, let me ask you a little question uh, with a tiny story. I, I, we all know Nigel Topping, our dear friend, who I know that you work with very closely. Um, when, he, when he came to work at CDP, where I work, I said to him, because I knew he'd been in industry and everything, and I said, how can I be a better leader? And he, and he looked at me and said, become a better person. 
And I thought, oh, mm. there's no trick. <laughs> right. I, thought, I thought there was something in a management book, you know. But he was telling me to do what you said, look in the mirror. And uh, I want to thank you personally for um, taking me to the only time in my life I've ever experienced um, a village, uh, you know, without a road uh, in, in rural India. I went there as a result of, of being on, on a quest with you. And it was a tremendous education for me. For those who haven't had the privilege to, 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 to have an experience like that, um, can I ask you what, like, the... Our listeners, you know, we have, uh, I'm, yes. we're very proud of thousands of listeners. What can they, they do to, to have that kind of experience practically? Well, you take the, the idea of noticing. I mean, more and more today, the work that I do is in my own neighbourhood. So I, we started working and learning by visiting other parts of the world because back when I started Leaders Quest uh, almost 20 years ago, the thing that I felt deeply motivated by was to show to, to help people experience that we live on this one planet, that we share this one planet, that the barriers that we might perceive between countries and nations and cultures, you know, are, are we have to we have to move beyond those. Now, today, ironically, we're at a point that is about localization, that is about our own neighbors. You can find people to learn from you know, many people, by the way, I think in this lockdown have, have learned from their neighbors, mm-hmm. right? You can go and discover who lives next door. You may not know that. <laughs> True exploration, um, right? Yeah. So a lot of the things we do today, a lot of my work today is about your own backyard, your own neighborhood. And that's what I'd encourage people to do. I, I, I've been struck. Many of the stories from around the world during this lockdown have been about people finding a huge sense of belonging and connection and satisfaction from helping somebody else uh, if if they're in a position to do so. And that's a powerful thing. Um, we, we've seen in some ways, a lot of people have seen their better selves, I think, through this time. We, it turns out we've got all these essential workers, right, who yeah. <laughs> live next door, who are keeping our cities and towns uh, going. And the, the invisible nurses and the invisible right. people who worked in the supermarket are suddenly right. the heroes who are saving the nation. Thank you. So you don't have to go to the, to the far side of the world. I, I think, you know, for me... Sometimes if you have the chance to spend time in the far side of the world, it's, it is about realizing that we are all one people, you know, with this one planet. And certainly our leaders need to understand that. I mean, we need leaders who, uh, who've spent time really immersed in other cultures. And unfortunately, we, we have too few of those. And speaking of that, you know, I mean, what the hell is going on? You know, I mean, we 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 just watched um, the three of us, Paul Christian and me, watched uh, a while ago the remarks by Robert Kennedy on the assassination of Martin Luther King. Actually, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it's this remarkable four-minute speech that he delivers on the back of a pickup truck to this group of people who are understandably outraged and heartbroken by what's happened. But the leadership that he develops to exhibit compassion, to exhibit empathy, to meet them where they mm-hmm. are and be honest, um, just juxtaposed against those who are standing in those positions right now. I mean, you always hope that when these moments of transformation and crisis come along that we will have the leaders to meet it. But it feels like if there's a secondary crisis that's running through everything that's happening, it's just that we don't seem to have elected the public servants who are capable of showing the way and demonstrating the humanity that brings us through this. Do you do you think that's true? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's true in many of the most high-profile yeah. situations. Of course, there are there are mayors around this country mm. and around the world. There are different people standing up. There are uh, all sorts of individuals from from public life and private life who are standing up in in incredible ways, and we need to shine the light on those. But you're yeah. absolutely right. I mean, I think I don't know. I would a book I would I would recommend to. to many of your listeners is Adam Kahane's book about power and love. Mm. Um, and I think good leadership is about the exercise that the relationship between power and love. And what I mean by power in that sense is the power to change things, the power to help create a positive future. I don't mean power over. Yeah. I think a lot of the people in positions of, of supposed leadership that we have right now, unfortunately, they're not leaders in, in my view. They, they are people in positions of power. Mm. And that's a very, very different thing. Mm. Um, and, you know, in the, I mean, leadership is not about you, right? Like, it's not about you. Now, you know, um, we have a lot of people right now who think it's about them. I mean, leadership's about generosity. And power is, is I think, so often misinterpreted. Um, you know, actually power's about letting go of your own needs and yeah. and being for something bigger. And, and navigating this relationship between, you know, who we are as people and the fact that we are, we are all part of this same whole and we can't function with it. This is true, of course, with nature, right? We, we're in an ecosystem. It doesn't work if, if one piece dominates the other. So, yeah, we've got this vacuum and I guess we've, we've maybe, you know, voted for people that stood for something that was a deeply held belief for us, but they didn't stand for love. Mm. And that's perhaps the, the you know, as um, different parts of the world as we go into election cycles and so on. I mean, really calling out what what is leadership and, you know, what is it that's driven people to, to choose individuals where, I mean, human beings are very perceptive. P- people, we see through one another. We see through one another, you know, when somebody is just a tough guy or girl, but it's often a guy, um, we see that. And many of the people that will have chosen them will see that, but there was something else that they perceived they needed that, that overrode it. And so there is, we've got to dig deep and we've got to listen more. And that's very tiring for a lot of people to hear right now. Uh, I think that's true in climate, by the way, you know. Yeah. No, I was, I mean, you know, the, the model of leadership you described, collective leadership, listening, you know, it's all about you, just reminds me so much of the things that Christiana has said, you know, in the lead up to Paris, etc. Can I take us to a slightly different topic, just because, you know, we've talked a lot about the the principles of leadership and what we're seeing in the world right now, or, or we're not seeing, um, evidently. Um, but it's also, you know, this podcast we, is about climate change and we kind of took that look at that week on week. And you have obviously, as you said, always been concerned about what's happening to the environment, to climate. But just recently you started working very much more directly about it and be good to hear a bit more specific detail about TED Countdown. But maybe just before we do, what have you observed in the climate space you know, it's such a particular challenge. It's so long term and it, it precipitates so much grief and frustration from people, etc. What do you see in terms of how people show up in this space that has sort of surprised you or has felt different? Yeah, I mean, well, the first thing is, uh, you know, the climate space, the climate change space is full of incredible people. Um, so, you know, that that stands out, incredible people, a lot of very smart people, actually, you know, scientists who've spent decades understanding this, people who've who've given their lives to this subject, I think, because it's about 
everything. You know, it, it is about our planet. It is mm. about all of life. And so um, it, it's full of incredibly dedicated people uh, is, is the first thing I'd say. Um, and because we're working on this huge, long-term, difficult-to-pin-down um, issue, there's, which there's this very difficult balance between urgency and the long term and the need mm. for patience. So it's really urgent. Like we have to halve emissions in the next 10 years. That is incredibly, incredibly challenging. The most challenging thing that human beings have ever done. Um, and, you know, people have been waving this flag and, you know, asking yeah. us to do this for decades. So it's there's this incredible frustration, I think, for people and, and this tension of the urgency with then needing a certain kind of patience and a certain willingness to keep engaging and to, to recognize, you know, that actually one of the things I think we're having to notice is that there's still a huge chunk of people, let me say, in the middle, good people who are not yet really bought in to the importance of this issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have to circle back and we have to uh, make space for those people and we have to have those conversations. Uh, I think the, the other thing that that's important in this space, and many people do this very well, is we've got to make room for people to change their minds and to do that with dignity. You know, yeah. it's mm, not about one that's really smart. side winning. You know, I, I've got this phrase, sh let people shift with dignity. Mm. It's not like I told you so, you finally figured it out. Oh, it's I've been like, working on climate change for 40 years and I'm so angry. <laughs> Sorry. And, you know, Paul, in the end, a lot of many of the people who get the credit will be people who woke up at the last minute. And that's yes. okay. That's <laughs> Absolutely. Ourselves, right? Absolutely that's true. okay. That's yeah. okay. We'll have to celebrate it and we'll have, you know, smile, but we'll have to celebrate it. So, so I think that's really, really tough. Um, the other and thing that, I'd Lindsay, sorry, just, just to compliment that, I think that goes hand in hand with the non-blaming, right? Non-blaming right. for having caused this or non-blaming for having not understood it or non-blaming, you know, that judgment, that negative judgment that comes over um, us is just so unhelpful because the only thing that that negative judgmental attitude does is push people away. Mm, so, right. you know, it's, it's difficult to stop ourselves when we're so passionate about the solution, but it's absolutely key to the solution to stay in a non-judgmental, non-blaming position. That, yeah. So, I mean, so there is a sort of humor, right, of smiling or laughing at ourselves because it, that judgment, you know, what's that about for me mm. when I feel totally pissed off and, you know, frustrated and full of self-righteousness? Um, it's not going to change anything. You know, I, I, it's not effective. It's it's actually quite a useless approach. So yeah. the, the other thing I, I think for people in the climate space is because folk are working on this huge, urgent, really important issue, um, there's often a lack of self-care, of, of, of paying attention to people's own sustainability and yeah. being kind to yourself. It's like, this issue is so important. Mm. It would be self-indulgent of me 
to spend some time, you know, renewing my own energy. Um, Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me, Lindsay? (laughs) Now we know why Lindsay's been invited on the podcast to give Christiana a Thank you, Lindsay. You've just just busted me. Right. I'm talking and I'm talking to all of those folk out there who are so (laughs) hard on ourselves. Right. So hard on ourselves. Um, and and Lindsay, they, they laughed at me. They laughed at me last week when I said lethargy is strategy, but and I and I got I got beaten up. But actually, there's there's something in it, right? Right, and you know because what will happen? I mean, Christiana, if you go now and take a a, a break, right? Wouldn't that be wonderful? And, and we don't hear from you for for some time, and you take a, you take a big rest. Is you will come back with new insight. Yeah. You'll come right. back with new wisdom. You'll come back with a new approach. Um, so it's not self-indulgent. And yeah. Yep. Love it. I'm aware that we've taken quite a bit of your time. We we have talked about before on this podcast, the TED countdown process that, that you yes, and we sorry, are involved in. I didn't say in. enough about that. No, 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 it's totally fine. So, um, so we've talked a bit about it before and we'd actually like to talk more about it, but um, I think probably better to have you on maybe with Chris Anderson at some point and we can then delve into what that is as it emerges. So I, that's probably... but, but hold on, Tom. Now, yeah. now you've you know piqued our curiosity. So um, we can have I, a, pr- a, a taster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, 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 a taster, a taster, a preview. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to do a taster and and then talk properly with it with Chris about it. So TED Countdown is about solutions to climate change, and it's about everybody getting involved in solutions to climate change. It's about um, recognizing those solutions, identifying them, people from all over the world, sharing solutions. And then it's about using the TED platform, YouTube, other media partners to share what it is we need to do to deal with greenhouse gas emissions, what it is that everybody can do, no matter their circumstance. And what is it those of us with the biggest responsibility to take action need to do? Um, so it's very positive. It's real. It's grounded in, you know, the very tough circumstance in which we find ourselves. But it's about how do we accelerate action and how do we take action at scale? And it spreads through a whole bunch of activities this year and next, October this year, a global virtual event inviting people all over the world to participate in that locally and and globally. And then much more activity next year in the run up to the UN Climate Conference. Super exciting. Amazing. Okay, very exciting. Lindsay, thank you so much. I mean, we've all known you and loved you for many years. So thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing. We hope that you will come back and talk with us again about Countdown and many other things. But for today, thank you very much for taking the time and we look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. Lindsay, thank you for sharing the light that you are. Thank you. Mm. Same back. (laughs) Same back. (laughs) Bye. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye. Great to hear those insights from Lindsay and, and, and the perspective that's given her over many years. Um, we just have a few minutes now to kind of wrap up. Christiana's not with us, but we're, we're back with Kumi. Um, maybe, Paul, we'll start with you. What did you, what impressions did you leave that, that conversation with? Well, just very briefly, um, as, as, as she said, you know, leadership is not about you. It's about other people. And I think her ability to um, focus on that servant leadership, if you will, uh, is one of the things that's most inspiring about her. You know, she's not a famous person like many other people we interview in the podcast, but I know that she spent a lot of time with people who who are famous and influential and has, has, has not 
influenced them, but actually allowed them to influence themselves. You know, that's that lovely word, educate, is to draw out of mm. the person. I think that that's, that's the thing about her that I most admire, and, and, I, and I wish her very well. Great, great, great interview. Yeah. Kumi? I think she's got it spot on in terms of what I would call the leadership essence, right? Mm. In the sense that um, servant leadership, decentralized leadership, I would add a few words that sit with it, which is collective leadership. Um, mm. And I think that we are at a point now where we need to be building what I would call, what, you know, what we could call leaderful organizations. We have mm. made a cardinal area far too often, which Lindsay is pointing us towards. We've, you know, our gaze has been more towards those with power than those that are powerless. And so, Lee, so, so for example, Lindsay ends off the interview by saying that, you know, uh, she's putting her energies at the local level, at a grassroots level, where yeah. she lives, and 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 trying to understand her neighbors and 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 so on. I think for the listeners of this podcast, if we want to move from being observers of history to becoming agents and shapers of history, we have options starting from where we live, mm. where we work, where we study. And don't let anybody, which is the main message I take away from Lindsay, don't let anybody tell you that you do not have the capability or the right to contribute to leading with ideas, with action and so on. And, um, and, and, and I learned a lot from her and I'm grateful for her work at Leadership Quest. Wow, that's lovely. I completely agree with that. That's so that's so well put. Um, and I, I would agree with everything you both said. I mean, just one one other reflection I had on Lindsay as a person is um, the last time I was with her on a quest, we were in Detroit, uh, where we first met Clay. Um, yeah. So the way we came across Clay was he was um, part of one of these quests we did in Detroit. And we went into prisons and, and met a variety of people that was a really amazing and very enriching experience. And, and one of the prisoners who'd been in um, uh, in jail for a long time, um, gave Lindsay this wonderful compliment. He said, um, the thing I've noticed about you is that your authority increases when your vulnerability increases. And I thought that as a way of approaching the world, that was a really interesting comment that we tend to think of authority and vulnerability as mutually exclusive, that our authority will only be there when we're not vulnerable. And actually the opposite is often true. All right, so this has been a different episode. It's been a fantastic episode. It's been a lot of fun, um, and we hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, having Kumi here with us, having Lindsay. We'll be back next week. We don't have Christiana back, but we have another guest co-host. Um, so we're looking forward to seeing you next week. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. Before I go into the credits, have you read Tom's new book, What Happened When We All Stopped? Have you watched the animation we created with Ted Ed and Jane Goodall? Well, be sure to check it out at the link I've put in the show notes below, whathappenedwhenweallstopped.com. You will not regret it. Okay, without further ado, Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell. And executive produced by Marina Mancilia Herman. This podcast is made by a team, and that team is Sharon Johnson, Sarah Law, Sophie McDonald, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Freya Newman, Nigel Topping, and Michael Northrup. Our hosts are Christiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson, and Tom Rivikarnak. And a thank you this week to Kumi Naidu for co-hosting with us. It was awesome to have you. 
Special thanks to Busher Morsi, Mei Gong, Daniela Tejada, and Diane Richards for making this week's production possible. And thank you to Lindsay Levin, our guest this week. I owe Lindsay a personal thank you for introducing me to Christiana and Tom while they were here in Detroit over a year ago. So thank you, Lindsay, and thank you, Leaders Quest. You can connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Global Optimism. And you can email us all your feedback at podcast at globaloptimism.com. Do it. Okay, next week, another episode you won't want to miss. Hit subscribe, and we'll see you then.